Hey guys, welcome to I Recommend. I know I said I didn't do episode numbers, but I couldn't help but notice that this is actually episode 10, which is pretty cool that people actually are listening through. I've gotten 10 episodes done. It's been longer than 10 weeks, but you know, I'm not very good with schedules. For episode 10, I didn't decide that I wanted to do this because it was a big, you know, episode 10, but it's just happening to coincide. We're going to talk about one of the big ones. We're going to tackle a big character in comic books, one that I've a little bit been avoiding talking about on the podcast just because it's been hard to try to, like, take this character's history and just, you know, knock it down into a couple of stories that you guys should read. But I've taken on the challenge, and today we're going to be talking about Peter Parker, the Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, if you know me, you know that one of my favorite characters ever, the first comic book character I ever fell in love with, and I'm sure it's you know the same for a lot of people listening, was Peter Parker. When I first saw Spider-Man, it would have been the Sam Raimi movies, and from that moment on, I mean, I was just hooked. Like, I couldn't, as I'm sure every kid, you know, went through the same phase, I just couldn't get enough of Spider-Man. I was reading the comic books, I was watching all of the cartoons, I was watching the movies over and over again until the DVDs didn't work anymore. Like, the Spider-Man 2 DVD... I need someone to message me if they remember this. The Spider-Man 2 DVD always had this tra the trailers in front of it, and one of them was Hitch. It's this um, Will Smith movie. And if you remember that trailer from the DVD, send me a DM because you're officially one of my favorite listeners. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've loved Spider-Man forever. I think the world has kind of loved Spider-Man forever. He's one of the best, if not the best, fictional characters in existence. And today I want to talk about him. I've been in a mood to talk about Spider-Man. I love Spider-Man, and... Why not? You know, it's a character I love. Uh, usually I would go into the behind the scenes of how this character came out, came about. I might get into a little of that, but for this episode specifically, I'm going to start off the bat by saying I'm not going to really be talking about any Lee, or, uh, Lee, Stan Lee or Steve Ditko stuff, just because I feel like it's a little redundant. I might mention the odd issue here or there, but everybody knows those stories, you know, like the back of their hand. And not that it's not worth reading today, it's just like we have better comics to recommend um i'll go into a little bit of the origin from what i remember stan lee just wanted to create a new character you know he was on a roll it was 1962 he created the fantastic four and i believe the next big marvel character they had created was ant-man uh hank pym i think those are the first two real marvel characters maybe the wasp is in there too but 1962 comes around and stan lee wants to create a new character he he figures that you know, there aren't any teenager superheroes. There's sidekicks like Robin uh, he'd bring up, or there's the whole Teen Titans, but there was never a superhero who was like a character onto themselves who was a teenager, who was someone who went through relatable issues with problems that every kid in, in America could relate to. There wasn't any character like that, so Stan Lee decided, this is according to him, of course, that he wanted to create a character like that. He went to Jack Kirby, his normal um, you know partner in crime. Jack drew up a... a, a um, uh, sketch of what he views Spider-Man to be. Stan didn't like it, so he went to Steve Ditko. Steve Ditko drew the Spider-Man costume we know and love. It's a little different, but from that moment on, the collaboration happened. Stan and Steve created Spider-Man in Amazing Fantasy 15 in 1962, August 1st, 1962, and the rest is history. Peter Parker was created, Spider-Man was born, and I just repeated myself, the rest is history. Um, so yeah, like I said, I'm not really going to get into the Stan Lee, Steve Ditko stuff. I'll give you like, you know, Amazing Spider-Man, uh, I think it's 33. Let me, let me make sure that's right. If This Be My Destiny is the issue that everyone talks about. It's the one where, um, Peter is, he's, he's got the, it, it, it's referenced in every single goddamn Spider-Man movie. He's got the, um, 
uh, what is it? It's I know exactly what it is. I just can't find the words for it. It's like a base has collapsed on him, and he's trying to lift it up. And it's that iconic image uh, by Ditko. I'm pretty sure it's by Ditko, where he lifts up the the base because he tries. He's trying to save Aunt May, because that's not his destiny. He's trying to you know see great power, great responsibility. Is uh, issues 31 to 33 actually uh, Amazing Spider-Man? But just read issue 33, and then there's obviously Amazing Spider-Man issue 50, which is um, Spider-Man No More. That's Stan Lee and I think still... No, I don't think that's Ditko. That is uh, John Romita. Yeah, John Romita Sr. That is the birth of uh, the Kingpin as a character. Wilson Fisk is debuted in that issue. And it's also, like I said, Spider-Man No More. It's the issue where Peter Parker throws his costume in the garbage and says, I'm not going to be Spider-Man anymore, only to be Spider-Man again by the end of the issue. Fun stuff. That's as much as the Lee uh, Stan Lee stuff I'm going to get into, at least. But let's get into other books let's just dive deep dive into it because i have a lot of books here written down that i want you guys to read the first one i'm gonna start with sounds like another very obvious one but it's amazing spider-man issue 121 uh and i think one 120 and 121 it's the death of gwen stacy this is written by um by jerry conway with art by gil kane it's i mean it's iconic in its own right i don't really even need to go into it i don't think everyone knows this story it's one of the most iconic stories in history of comic books it's one of the most seminal and important stories in the history of comic books peter parker's love gwen stacy she's murdered by the green goblin and then in retaliation peter goes to kill the green goblin green goblin kills himself you know it's fairly cookie cutter these days but back in the day i mean it blew people's minds it was it was like a shitstorm that started. It was like one of the first real cases of comic book fan outrage. Like, how dare you kill Gwen Stacy? No one knew it was going to happen. Kind of came out of nowhere, especially for the people at Marvel as well. Stan Lee likes to say, or liked to say, that he had no hand in it, that he had no idea what was happening. And I do believe him because Gwen was actually based on his wife, Jill, and he loved, or not Jill, oops, Joan, uh, Joan Lee, he loved Joan, and he based Gwen Stacy on her, so I don't think he would okay Gwen being murdered, but nonetheless, it happened, and she's been dead since then. It's been 50 years, and Gwen Stacy has not come back, which is a miracle in itself. So from this point, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Like I said, Death of Gwen Stacy, 121, I think it was issue, or issue 121, but I think it was 1971 that that happened. I'm going to skip a decade, and we're going to go straight into the 80s. Uh, the first book I'm going to give you from the 80s is one of my favorites. I don't think, I wouldn't consider it underrated, because I think it is on people's radar, especially Spider-Man fans' radar. But if you haven't read this before, it's Spider-Man versus Wolverine. It's a self-contained uh, graphic novel. It's like 30-something pages. It might be maybe 40-something. It's very short. But it tells a tale of Spider-Man and Wolverine. Like I said, it's called Spider-Man versus Wolverine. They only fight at the end. But it has huge, absolutely massive ramifications for the character of Peter Parker that are still kind of referenced today. Um, it's kind of a noir book. It's very noir-y, uh, dark, grim. This is kind of the tone of the 80s Spider-Man comics. I'm going to give you a couple of these. It's my favorite era of Spider-Man is kind of the um, the crime stuff, you know, the noir uh, mobster ga mobster gaffia gangster mafia kind of stuff is my favorite era of spider-man and this is just right in there it's a cold war book so it's it's really like a spy noir kind of thriller it's a lot of fun and like i said there's huge ramifications for peter parker's character something happens at the end i don't want to spoil it if you have heard of this book even tangentially you probably know what it is but like i said if you haven't read it read it and then you'll see the ending and you'll be like what the f how like how have i never heard of this it's it's huge um the next book i'm going to give you is also from the 80s this is the death of gene DeWolf. 
So Jean DeWolf in Spider-Man comics was a, she's pretty much Peter's Commissioner Gordon, kind of, a little bit like that. She's just this really cool uh, woman that's on the police force, the NYPD, and she's in it with Spider-Man, they're friends, they're buddies. Uh, if you play the PS4 game, think Yuri Watanabe, she's kind of a modern version of Jean DeWolf. But yeah, Jean DeWolf, she's murdered in this book by a character called the Sin Eater, who the big mystery of the book is who is the Sin Eater and how can we stop him, what's his plan, blah 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 yada yada yada. This is issues, uh, Spectacular Spider-Man, not amazing, Spectacular Spider-Man issues 107 to 110 is by Peter David and Rich Buckler. Like I said, it's kind of a crime book. It's more in line with, like I would say, something like um, NCIS or something like that. It's more like a procedural. It, it ends uh, like a TV show episode. Maybe a bit Columbo in there, just kind of like your your uh, your TV show, your your weekly crime TV show procedural kind of thing. That's kind of what they were going for with this Spider-Man book, and it's like I said, a lot of fun. Actually, fun's not really the word. It's but it's a fantastic book. It's maybe my favorite Spider-Man story, one of at least, uh, if not my favorite. It's um, in this book. We also get Daredevil, uh, Matt Murdock, Peter, and Matt become friends in this book. This is kind of where the relationship begins and blossoms. So that's really cool to see, kind of going back to the beginning of that. Um, yeah, I'm not going to spoil the Sin Eater or anything like that. If you've read the modern Nick Spencer stuff, you you see the Sin Eater a lot in that actually. Um, but he's a great character. He's a great villain, and he's he's pretty scary. And he's got a really interesting kind of backstory about him. Uh, the next book I'm going to give you is probably the most iconic Spider-Man story ever. It's a book that everyone recommends, and I mean, I'm not going to falter on it. It's one of the best Spider-Man stories ever written. It's Craven's Last Hunt. This book is very tonally different from what you would expect from a Spider-Man comic. It's very kind of grimy and dark. It's um, kind of gross and disgusting. It's like a horror movie, nearly. It's like a horror Spider-Man comic. It's issues... So it's actually a tie-in for every Spider-Man book. It's not just Amazing Spider-Man, but like I said, it goes through every book. So it's Web of Spider-Man issue 31, then Amazing Spider-Man uh, 293, then Spectacular 131, then Web 32, Amazing uh, 294, and then Spectacular 132. This is by J.M.D. Mateus and Mike Zek. It's, um, so basically the premise of this story is Craven the Hunter, who is, because of this story, really one of the best Spider-Man villains. Definitely the most underrated Spider-Man character, I would say, um... He uh, he decides that he wants to become Spider-Man. He decides that he can become Spider-Man if he can kill the spider and then become him and become better. He's kind of fulfilling his own prophecy there. That's what he decides he'll be his last hunt. So it's this story of Peter kind of on the sidelines. If you've read the book or you even know about this book, you probably know why. But again, not really going to get into spoilers. But it's Peter being out of commission while Craven dresses up as Spider-Man and goes around killing criminals in a Spider-Man costume. It's really cool. It's um, really dark, very grim. It's right after Peter and MJ got married, which I do have down here, which I'll, I'll say in a second. So it's kind of building off their relationship a little bit too. It's amazing. I love it. I mean, everyone loves it. If you haven't read it, please read it. It's it's just incredible. Uh, the wedding, like I just said, Spider-Man gets married to MJ. That's 19, um, 1987. That's issues, uh, Amazing Spider-Man Annual 21. It's a shame that we look back at this book today and we just like, you know, we wish we could have it back when Peter was married to MJ, but it's looking more and more like we will never get this back. So if you go back and read this issue, it's like really, a, it's like a time capsule. It's like a monument almost where you go and you're like, fuck, like, I wish we could get this back in any kind of capacity. Um, I'm kind of moving a little bit fast here. I might slow down a little bit. Um... But yeah, Amazing Spider-Man Annual 21 is where you get the wedding. Uh, going back to Craven's Last Hunt a little bit, it's um, it's a really interesting story. 
like I said, if you read it, it doesn't read like a Spider-Man story. It reads more like a Batman story, and that's because it actually initially was a Batman story. J.M.D. Mateus uh, pitched to DC, and he said, what if we did a story where the Joker kills Batman and he becomes Saint? And then DC said, get the fuck out of here, that's really dumb. He went to Marvel, he said, what if we do a story where someone kills Spider-Man and then becomes Spider-Man? Marvel went, hell yeah, we love it. They did it. And then he went to DC, and then he wrote that Batman story eventually. It's called... um going sane so if you want to read that it's kind of fun but that's kind of where this book came from that's why this book is so tonally different not so much different from the era like i said the 80s era of spider-man which is my favorite era is kind of all about dark and grime it's it's the 80s in new york it's kind of this very grim place to live um but peter remains the hope in that even though his character in the 80s is very dark uh, he's wearing the black suit so he's visually representing that as well um so yeah, let's let's move on a little bit. Let's get let's talk about when he gets rid of the black suit. So I have here Amazing Spider-Man 300, but it's really the whole range of like 280, 298 to like three blah blah blah. But I have him written down as the Todd and Michelinie days. So this is where Todd McFarlane and David Michelinie have the book. Todd McFarlane's art might be the most iconic art in the history of Spider-Man. It's I mean like the words don't exist. It's incredible. Obviously, it's the reason that like books sold at the time is because Todd McFarlane was drawing them. But that's not to say that Devin Michelinie was a bad uh, bad writer at all. It's just that Todd's art and Todd McFarlane's talent was like generational. You know, it was everyone kind of reading at the time understood that this is a once in a generation kind of writer artist combo we're getting, especially with Todd McFarlane's art. His pencils, like he he's kind of the the person who he they call it spaghetti webbing. If you look at the webbing nowadays, it's all kind of very similar. It's because Todd McFarlane created the style around Spider-Man's webbing. And he's also the kind of person that came up with Peter in acrobatic poses, kind of stretching the limits of what the human body could do. Todd believed that, like, if he's Spider-Man, he should be posing all elastic like a spider, which, you know, really works for the character. And the visual language of Spider-Man was kind of rewritten by Todd McFarlane in a very, very cool way. And I think everyone kind of knows that. In this, uh, in this range of issues, you'll get the debut of Venom. It's issue 300, where Peter is wearing the black suit and fights Venom for the first time. Venom debuts, it's Eddie Brock, and, you know, it's a great story. It's that one issue, it's really it's really cool, and Peter gets his red suit back at the end. 301, he's got the cover. It's the cover where Peter's back in the red suit. I actually am now realizing that I'm wearing a shirt that has Amazing Spider-Man 300 on it, like the cover of that issue. It's, it's um, Todd drawing the black suit for the last time. And it's, I mean, it's just so cool. If you look up the cover, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've probably seen it before somewhere else, or, or at least homaged in some way, because it's one of the most iconic images for Spider-Man. Uh, after this, I would say in the 300 range, you have the return of the Sinister Six. So this isn't Todd McFarlane. This is actually Eric Larson, who, if you ask me, I think Eric Larson is actually... I like his art in, for Spider-Man more than Todd McFarlane. It's very similar to Todd, it's, um, if you've seen, so if you know Savage Dragon, Eric Larson was one of the people who, with Todd McFarlane, obviously started um, Image. If you've seen Savage Dragon at all, that's Eric Larson. But his Spider-Man art, it's something about it. No one really talks about it. I, I think at the time, people really did love it. But nobody really remembers Eric Larson as, like, an all-time great Spider-Man artist. But I really, really believe that he is. And... So I, I think I said the issue is it's 334 to 339, but this is actually the return of the Sinister Six. This is a story where um, we haven't seen the Sinister Six since the Stan Lee and Steve Ditko days. It was the annual, I think it was this Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1, where you debuted the Sinister Six, and it was, um, come on, off the top of my head, it was Electro, Craven, uh, 
the Sandman, Mysterio, Doc Ock, and the Vulture, right? But in this time, things have changed. Craven the Hunter is dead. Um, and so we've replaced him with um, Hobgoblin. But it's not the Hobgoblin you think it is. It's Jason McIndale, who is someone who has sold his soul the devil. So he's like a demon Hobgoblin. He will eventually become Demo Goblin. Um, and I think the rest of the team is the same, though. It's still Doc Ock, who in the, at this point is wearing a white suit. Not like a costume, but like literally like a white kind of suit jacket and, and, and I almost said trousers, but pants and, you know, boot, uh, shoes and whatnot. He looks really clean. He looks really cool. It's my favorite version of Doc Ock, definitely. And he's kind of in his crazy, egomaniacal, supervillain phase. This is a story where I have to spoil this because this will this is what's going to get you to read it if you haven't read it before. This is a story where Doc Ock's plan is that he's going to send a satellite to space. I, I think I'm remembering this correctly. He's going to send a satellite to space with like a with like a toxin or a, a something that's going to spread over the earth and cure everyone of their cocaine addictions so that he can then um he can corner the market on cocaine sales and kind of have this cocaine empire. It sounds so weird when you say it out loud. It's really weird when you read it in the book. But I guarantee you that if you do read it, you will enjoy it just as much as I do because it is fucking hilarious. It's one of those things where it's like, that's your plan, man? You're going to cure cocaine addiction so that you can perpetuate the cocaine trade in the world? You know, it's so Dr. Octopus, Otto Octavius, one of the smartest people on the planet. And that's his, you know, master plan. Whatever. I love it. I really do. Um, and there's actually a sequel to this book, which is in... Um, well, I'll, I'll backtrack to that a little bit. I have to set up. Uh, so after Todd McFarlane, like I mentioned, he's he's drawing Amazing Spider-Man. He gets his own book, which is just adjectiveless Spider-Man. No amazing, no spectacular, no nothing, just Spider-Man. This is drawn by Todd McFarlane and written by him as well. He gets the entire book to do whatever he wants. And the first thing he draws is um, this arc called um, Torment, I think it is. And it's an arc about the vulture, not the vulture, the lizard, actually. It's an arc about the lizard. It's the coolest you've ever seen the lizard. He's very feral in it. And it's also got this character who is retconned to be like a partner of Craven the Hunter. Her name is Calypso. Very cool characters. Very, very cool art. He's kind of really experimenting with panels and panel layout and page layout and stuff like that. Todd was, he was really ahead of his time when he came to art. But the reason I preface this is because in Spider-Man issues 18 to 23, Eric Larson takes over uh, drawing and writing the book, much like Todd, and he does a sequel to The Return of the Sinister Six. And this is called Revenge of the Sinister Six. And this one I actually might enjoy more. The fun thing about this book is that it's every issue has a different team-up. So Peter's teaming up with a bunch of characters from the Marvel Universe. He's teaming up with the Hulk, who at this point is Smart Hulk. He's teaming up with Ghost Rider. He's becoming a Cyborg Spider-Man. If you've seen Cyborg Spider-Man, this is where that comes from, is from uh, Revenge of the Sinister Six. Um, and there's another thing. Oh, there's another character, right? His, uh, his really 90s character. Well, character does not really come back since then. His name is Sleepwalker. He is fucking stupid. But if you read this book and you see him, you'll ex you'll understand exactly why he is relic and has you know been relegated to the '90s and never came back since then. I'm looking at my list now and I'm actually realizing I kind of skipped one. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna go back a little bit. Uh, I'm pretty sure this issue is also from the '80s, but this is the kid who collects Spider-Man. Um, it's another famous Spider-Man story. It's actually half the issue if you read Amazing Spider-Man issue 248. It's only half the issue. 
It's about this kid who's obsessed with Spider-Man, and then Peter kind of arrives in his room and goes like, hey, it's me, I'm Spider-Man, yada, yada, yada. Very heart-wrenching story. I don't want to get into any spoilers, but it's it's one of the more emotional Spider-Man issues that's out there. But it's very, very good, obviously. Uh, the next issue that I'm going to recommend is one of my favorites. And this is Spectacular Spider-Man issue 200. Um, I think, let me look up. I got to make sure the artist and who everyone is on this book because it's, like I said, one of my favorite Spider-Man stories. It is uh, J.M. DeMatteis and Sal Buscema. Um, basically, the, the long and the short of it is that Norman Osborn died when Gwen Stacy died. He died in the 70s. And so we've had this very slow turnaround until the 90s where Norman Osborn is dead and his son Harry is becoming the Green Goblin. Harry becomes the Green Goblin, and in Spectacular Spider-Man issue 200, their relationship kind of boils over, Pete and Harry, and it's the last issue between them. Uh, spoil it a little bit. It's, like I said, it's one of the best single issues in the history of Spider-Man. It's maybe my, if you were to ask me, like, what's my favorite issue of Spider-Man ever, I might say Amazing uh, Spectacular Spider-Man 200. Um, it's... It's really heartbreaking. You know, we know this relationship between Harry and Peter is very special. It's Peter's, you know, one of Peter's only real friends, Peter's best friend, really, since college. Um, and he's he loses him because he, he, he can't handle it. Harry goes crazy. Um, and it does lead to his death. This is where Harry Osborn dies in canon. And Peter is, like, broken over it, you know? Like, it's it's really interesting because Harry, you know, most Spider-Man villains just have their connections to Peter. But Harry's got a connection to Mary Jane as well. They've all known each other. And he had a connection to Gwen, obviously, as well. So it's you see this kind of triangle where Peter and MJ, all they want to do is help Harry because that's their best friend. And Harry's, like, he's he's gone too far. He's far beyond help at this point, and it's, it's a tragedy. But it's a really, really good issue, and it's kind of like a really nice bow on that kind of post-Gwen era where Peter has been so dark. You know, it's it's been 20 years or so, but wrapping up kind of an arc for Peter there where he's, he's coming out of it a little bit, but he's also kind of really burdened with Spider-Man once more because now not only is his, you know, former love died, but his best friend has too. And his and his father also died as well. You know, it's so fucked up for Peter. Peter loses everything. What a what a sad what a sad existence. Um, the next issue I'm gonna have uh, written down is actually Amazing Spider-Man number four hundred. Four hundred is a tough one. The reason it's a tough one is not because it's a bad issue or anything, or because it's controversial or doesn't you know age well or something like that. It's because it takes place during the Clone Saga. If you know Spider-Man, if you know comic books, you know that the Clone Saga was this event that happened in the 90s where they introduced... Back in the 70s, there was a story called the Clone Genesis where after Gwen Stacy died, Marvel, pretty much Stan Lee, told them to bring her back. Bring her back at any cost. We have a rule that says that like dead means dead in the Marvel Universe, but fuck it, bring Gwen back. We can just... do However you can do it, do it. And they created the Jackal, who was this character, uh, Miles Warren, who was one of Peter's college professors, who they retconned to be obsessed with Gwen Stacy and had actually cloned her. So this is where we get our first clones in the Marvel Universe, was from the clone Genesis. Uh, I don't have these written down because it's really not worth reading. I have read them. Not great. Uh, but it's fun. It's kind of fun. It's, you know, retro. But the thing is, is that they create a Peter Parker clone. Uh, Miles Warren creates a Peter Parker clone, who then Peter... Peter throws down a smokestack and kills. 
and it's kind of it. That's it. But in the 90s, they bring that clone back. That clone is not also, by the way, uh, he's not Ben Riley. That's actually Kane. If you know um, the modern version of Scarlet Spider, that's who that clone is. He's the first Peter Parker clone. But they introduce the second Peter Parker clone, Gwen Stacy, not Gwen Stacy, Ben Riley. They introduce him and they say that um, he is the original Peter Parker. That the Peter Parker you've known and loved your entire life, the one we've been reading about this entire time, was a fake. He's not the real Spider Man. Actually, this new guy is actually the real Spider Man. And this was all a ploy by Marvel because what they wanted to do was they wanted to edge these characters up. They wanted to get rid of Peter Parker and they wanted to have a new Spider-Man that was much, you know, more gritty and darker, more uh more violent. He was much my he's like uh, Asriel, if you know Batman Nightfall. He's he's pretty much Asriel. He um yeah, and this story went on for years and years. And it was horrible, and it tanked the Marvel industry. It's the reason they nearly—it's one of the reasons they nearly went bankrupt. And you know, yada yada yada. It's always going to be remembered as one of the worst times in the history of the character, one of the worst times in the history of comic books. But in the middle of that, you get this gem of an issue, Amazing Spider-Man 400, where Aunt May is on her deathbed, and Peter, you know, he's trying to comfort her, and she tells him that she has always known that he was Spider-Man. And this is kind of, you know, if you've uh, played the PS4 game, at the end of that, she says that she's always known as well. That's where that comes from. It's, and that might be, it's another one of my favorite issues, obviously, but that might be one of my favorite retcons in the history of the character, is that Aunt May knew since he was like a teenager that he was Spider-Man, and she's always known because she's not stupid, you know, she's an old woman, she lived with him since he was a, you know, a little boy, she knows Peter, so she knows that he's Spider-Man. She's known he's been Spider-Man the entire time. And they finally get to kind of share this moment where Peter's not no longer lying to her. He's no longer hiding anything. He can show himself to her, you know, his true self, and she accepts him, and then she peacefully passes away. And it's a beautiful issue. It's it's amazing. Um the issue though is that obviously they had to retcon this and the way the way they retcon this. So the clone saga you know, happens, and the way that they kind of backtrack out of the Clone Saga is they decide that they have no choice but to bring Norman Osborn back to life. So Norman Osborn, like I said, died uh, ASM 122. He murdered Gwen Stacy, or it might have been 121. No, 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 it was 122. Uh, He murders Gwen Stacy, and then he accidentally kills himself. He died, but then they brought him back in the 90s to kind of solve the Clone Saga because they had no idea how to conclude this story. So they said that in a big ploy to kind of really fuck Peter up, he hired an actress who looked exactly like Aunt May to then die, because she's, you know, a fantastic method actor or something. She dies. Um, And then Aunt May is still alive because she wasn't actually that woman. So this beautiful moment that Peter and May shared was actually an actress pretending to be Aunt May who took the role of a lifetime and died pretending to be this old woman. There's so much nonsense in that era. That's the same era where Peter and MJ, uh, MJ's actually pregnant, and Peter's going to have a child. But then Norman Osborn comes along. He pretends to murder MJ in a plane uh, crash, and then he actually does kidnap and murder their child, which is something that you know isn't brought up a lot because how could you even bring that up? But that did happen. Peter and MJ had a child that Norman Osborn murdered. So it's like... Nowadays in Amazing Spider-Man, when Zell Wells is writing him and he's working with Norman Osborn, not only has he killed Gwen Stacy, he killed their their fucking kid. He killed their baby. I don't know. I just think that's like, I don't know how we could ever bring that up again. I'm not even sure that that's canon anymore because of One More Day. 
but that did happen and i mean yeah i'm just gonna let that sit um let's move out of the 90s because jesus christ the 90s were not a good era um spider-man blue that's what i have written down here Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale, it's uh, the early 2000, and basically this is one of their color books. So they have, uh, you know, Daredevil Yellow, uh, Hulk Gray, uh, Captain America White, but this is probably the most famous one. Same creative team as The Killing Joke, not The Killing Joke, uh, The Long Halloween and stuff like that. But this is a story of Peter in the modern day. He's married to MJ. He's been Spider-Man for a long time. He's leaving a message to Gwen, and this is kind of um, him telling her, or him just recalling his life with her. Because even though he's married to MJ, and even though he has, like, his life has gotten better since then, he he can never forget Gwen. I mean, how could he, you know? This this woman who he said, like, he was fully intent on marrying, she gets murdered by his worst enemy. You know, even if he is happily married with MJ, and he, I, I, I am one person who thinks that MJ is, like, the actual true love of his life, you know, that he loved Gwen, but he didn't love her as much as he loves MJ, and I think MJ's better for him. But, like, you couldn't get over that. That's something that would always scar you, no matter how much you love your current wife. The fact that she died in your arms, your old, you know, the the old love of your life, it's, it's always going to be something that you carry along. And it's something that I'm really happy that, in comics, MJ respects. She understands it, because Gwen was also her friend, you know? And so they kind of go through this trauma together. But Spider-Man Blue is the retelling of how him and Gwen fell in love. It's one of the best Spider-Man stories ever. It's a book I would probably just recommend. Like, if you've never read a Spider-Man book, I might say just read Spider-Man Blue. Like, if you've only read the, uh, if you've only seen the movies, especially the Andrew Garfield ones, and you want to read any of the comics, Spider-Man Blue is a really great place to start. Um, but yeah, it's it's a fantastic book. Uh, Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale, amazing art, amazing writing. It's very heartfelt. It's gut wrenching, but it's it's one of those stories with like a really bittersweet ending because Gwen is gone, but that doesn't mean that we can't move on. You know, remembering her. It's really nice, and um, yeah, it's just a really sweet book. Uh, the next book I have written down here is the JMS run. J. Michael Straczynski, the creator of Babylon 5, he was one of the Hollywood friends that Joe Casada in the early 90s, not the early 90s, the early 2000s went to to come to write Marvel Comics. He got Kevin Smith, he got Brian Bendis, and then he got uh, J. Michael Straczynski to write Amazing Spider-Man. So JMS takes over in issue 30 of volume 2, um, and he writes Until One More Day. I'm not going to make you read One More Day. I never would. I think there's stories, honestly, worse than One More Day in his run. Like, uh, Skin Deep is not one I hate. And obviously, people know Sin's Past, which is another really terrible one. But So I'm just going to tell you to read from issues 30 to 508. And the reason it says 508 is because at 500, they go back to legacy numbering. But if you just read it through, it's going to make sense to you. Just 30 to 508. 508, cut it off there. That's where the John Romita Jr. art uh, ends. That's where... Mike Diodato takes over art, which isn't the bad part. The bad part is that's where Sin's Past begins, is in 509. So just skip all that shit. Don't even try it. Just read up until J, uh, J.R. Uh, what's his name? J. John Romita Jr. I just blanked on it. Read until John Romita Jr. is off the book, and then don't continue reading the run. What this one really does well, though, is that it takes Peter... So this is a, a run where Peter is, like, distinctly an adult. He's probably in his 30s. He's a teacher. He's got a steady job. And it is maybe my favorite Amazing Spider-Man run. It really, like... Something about JMS and Peter, he really gets that vo that character's voice. Peter's a little angrier. He's a little scarier. He's way, like, more emotionally dependent on people. But it, it makes him more than more of a real character. An issue in this run, though, is that because 
uh, we've retconned Amazing Spider-Man 400, where May knows. May finds out in this run, and they have another f- amazing issue. I was going to say fantastic, but I wanted to say amazing because Amazing Spider-Man. But he's there's another really, really incredible issue where Peter and May talk. And this, is a, this issue is called The Conversation. It's another one of the best issues of Spider-Man ever. But Peter and May talk about, you know, why he's Spider-Man, how he became Spider-Man, you know, the whole nine yards, Uncle Ben and all of that. It's It's one of the best ever, and... I would definitely recommend reading the entire run just so you can get that issue. It's very early on as well. It's just right after the first arc. Um, it's got a really a lot of really good Peter stuff. Peter and MJ they kind of reunite in this book. He he tells her that he's you know in love with her. He's always loved her, and that he needs her, and that MJ's there. And it's it's just really really good run. And it's a shame the way that it had to end because it's obvious that like JMS had his kind of groove writing Peter, MJ, and May, and then. Uh, editorial came along and said, no, we're, we're ending the marriage. That's kind of what happens is the next big thing that happens in Spider-Man after the J. Michael Straczynski run is one more day, which I'm not even going to mention. We're just going to skip right over it. I'm going to tell you next to read Marvel Knights Spider-Man. So this one is different. This is, um, this is its own side book, Marvel Knights Spider-Man. It's 12 issues or just read the first 12 issues. It's, um, Mark Miller and, uh, Terry Dodson, I think is on art and, it's it's a weird book. So this book is pretty much, uh, if you've read a Mark Miller book, you've read a, if you read one Mark Miller book, you've pretty much read them all. But this one isn't so bad. He's got a better voice for Peter than he does like you know Captain America or anything like that. But Peter is um, it's it's pretty much Peter versus uh, Norman again. But you kind of he ties in every other villain he's got. So there's really cool moments where you get like this really short moment of uh, Otto. You know, Dr. Octopus versus Green Goblin, which is something I've always wanted. Um, Peter and Black Cat team up. Peter and MJ are married again. It's in that era. May knows. Yada, yada, yada. It's a fun story. It's it's very cinematic, I would say. Mark Miller's always been good at that, the cinematic kind of comic books. But just read the first 12 issues. They're not bad. They're, they're pretty fun, actually. Uh, after that, like I said, I'm going to skip over the... Um, I'm going to skip over one more day, so we're not even going to mention it, but one more day does obviously retcon the marriage. So at this point, uh, from now on, Peter and MJ are no longer married. They're no longer dating. Um, Who else? Uh, Harry Osborn is back to life. Peter doesn't have uh, organic webbing. At some point in the early 2000s during Avengers Disassembled, Peter gets organic web shooters like uh, Tobey Maguire. But after one more day, they retcon that, and he's no longer got organic webbing. Uh, And yeah, it's the worst decision in the history of the character. Yada yada yada, but we're gonna move on from that. We're gonna talk about the um, this uh, dance lot run. Dance lot takes over in uh six hundred and oh shit, I really should have. Well, dance lot takes over. Right? So dance lot's one of the characters, uh, one of the one of the characters, one of the writers who takes over uh, after one more day. After one more day, they did this thing where they produced. Uh, Spider-Man, amazing. So they they got rid of all the other Spider-Man comics. So they got rid of like Web of or Spectacular. They got rid of um, Friendly Neighborhood and all that. And they just said, nope, it's only Amazing Spider-Man. We're only doing one Spider-Man comic, but it's going to come out three times a month with different creative teams. So the first creative team right after One More Day is Dan Slott and Steve McNiven. This is where they create like uh, Mr. Negative and whatnot. It's not bad. It's just like it's so weighed down by one more day that it's even hard to kind of process this book on its own. But 
eventually Dan Slott kind of comes out of this as the one Spider-Man writer that sticks, and he has the longest tenure on Amazing Spider-Man of any writer that's ever written Spider-Man, which is crazy to think about. He he's written he wrote six hundred, he wrote seven hundred, he wrote eight hundred, he wrote a lot of Spider-Man comics. Um, so I'm not gonna tell you to read his whole run. Big Time. If you start with Big Time, which is his run, uh, which let me look. I hadn't actually write down when Big Time starts. But it's a really that's a really fun one. It's got art by Umberto Ramos, who I love, um, and um, it's basically Peter gets a job as a scientist, and he's kind of fulfilling his prophecy of being a scientist. He promised Aunt May way back when Spider Man was still being drawn by Ditko that he was going to be Spider Man uh, or that he was going to be a scientist rather, and so he kind of fulfills that prophecy this day. Uh, this time he's being paid well. He's got a good job. He's got a good, you know, uh, healthy relationship with a new character named Har- Carly Cooper. Peter's actually doing pretty well at the time. At the point of big time, big time uh, starts at Amazing Spider Man uh, six forty eight. So six forty eight is actually where Slot takes over as the writer of Spider Man from now on. He writes from six forty eight to eight oh one, which is fucking ridiculous. But the book I really wanted to tell you about was Spider Island which is issues uh, 662 to 673. It's a big Spider-Man event where basically um, New York is overrun by the Spider Queen and Peter's got to fight the, you know, yada, yada, yada. And it's a lot of fun, though. I would recommend just reading it. Don't even really look up anything about it or, you know, think too hard about it when you are reading it. There's, There's almost nothing I can really explain about it because it's one of those books where it's just like, just read it. It's really fun. Um... This is the point where I realized that there's a book that I really wanted to mention, but I've actually forgot to say it. So we're going to rewind a little bit once more, and we're going to talk about um, Peter Parker, Spider-Man. Uh, it's a book that started in the nineteen uh, in 1999, but the issues I really want you to read uh, start at issue 20. But the writer is Paul Jenkins. Paul Jenkins, this is a run that I think, I mean, no one talks about this run, but it is one of the best Spider-Man runs ever. And it's it's because Paul Jenkins... Uh, and the art is by uh, Mark Buckingham, but the 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 writing on this book is just immaculate. Like it's my favorite version of Peter. I would say Peter's you know down in the dumps. He's depressed, but he's always kind of going through everything. He comes out of it with a smile. He's learning so much. And if you're just gonna read any issue from this book, if you're just gonna read any issue from this entire recommend you know um, this episode of the podcast read peter parker spider-man issue 20 by paul jenkins and mark buckingham it's from 2000 august 1st 2000 so peter had uh spider-man had just turned 48 no 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 no, 38 peter just turned 38 um this is i just i mean it'll blow you away it's a fantastic issue i really really love it and um like i said paul jenkins has a fantastic kind of grasp on the character if you want to read through the entire run by paul jenkins i would definitely say so there's another issue by paul jenkins that i would recommend but i have to find it because it's it's like a one-off issue where basically peter uh comes across this kid who has cerebral palsy who can't really speak to him but peter kind of relates to this kid and takes his mask off actually shows the kid that he is peter that he who he is under the mask and they have a moment together where i I gotta find it so i can just read it so i'm gonna pause here and i'm gonna find this issue Okay, I found it. So it's The Spectacular Spider-Man, issue 14, by Paul Jenkins and Paolo Rivera. Paolo Rivera is a... I just love his art so much. He's always painting his art, uh, especially in these days. His art is just insane. Um, But like I said, it's about a kid who has, like, cerebral palsy, and he just kind of watches Spider-Man all day. That's all he does. But eventually, Spider-Man, 
you know, acknowledges him, he sees him, and then they have a moment together where Peter takes his mask off to the kid and kind of gives him a look, but I'm going to read you what the kid, like in his internal monologue, says about Peter. He says, uh, so Peter basically rips his mask off, and then the kid says this. Um, uh, it's not, it's, of course, this app, this app always, like, never focuses on the panel you want it to focus on. Here we go. He said, I don't know if I could re- describe his features, even to this day. Ordinary. Saddest face I ever saw. He tries to smile, but I know it hurts. This is all for my benefit. He wants me to be okay, and he's giving me this. And then he says, um, keep yourself out of trouble, he says, and he leaves. And I realize that the atmosphere he carries with him isn't electricity. It's sadness, worse than mine, and I realize I feel sorry for him. And it's, you know, that's one of those issues where you really kind of dig into the sadness of Peter Parker, this poor guy who's lost everything, but, you know, he tries to smile for other people's sake. He's always trying to make people feel better because with great power, there must also come great responsibility. It's one of those issues where it's like a fantastic microcosm of what Spider- uh, Spider-Man, of what Spider-Man is. Uh, it's a fantastic microcosm of what Spider-Man is as a character, you know? Uh, so we're going to fast forward back to where I was and we're going to talk about Spider-Verse. Um, you know, if you've read, you've, I want to say you've probably read Spider-Verse if you're listening to this podcast, but if you haven't, it is a lot of fun. It's um, it's in um, it's after um, I keep saying um, what's the fucking word I'm looking for? Sp- Superior Spider-Man. It's after Superior Spider-Man, which I did uh, have an episode about uh, a month ago, or Jesus, like two, three months ago now. Um, but so after Spectacular Spider-Man. Peter uh, comes back as, P- as Spider-Man, and then Spider-Verse happens. Spider-Verse is issues uh, 9 to 15 of Amazing Spider-Man from 2014. It's fun. It's not as good as it really should be, but it is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and I would recommend that just to read on its own. It, it is a lot of fun. It's it's like a kind of blockbuster movie Spider-Man comic, and, and I always really enjoy uh, books like that. Um, after Spider-Verse, though, uh, Dan Slott continues on the book, and after Secret Wars, Dan Slott takes over Amazing Spider-Man again, and this time Peter Parker is like a billionaire, like Tony Stark. He's a globe-trotting superhero billionaire with crazy tech and all that nonsense. You know how it is. Um, and this run, I'm not really sure how well it's regarded. I find it to be a lot of fun because I always enjoy kind of globe-trotting Spider-Man stories. There's another one in this era called um, Family Business, which is by um, Mark Wade and Gabriel Del Otto. That's a really fun globe-trotting Spider-Man story, but Dan Slott kind of fed into that a lot. It had a very James Bondy vibe, which I enjoy from this run. But the stuff I really enjoy happens in issue. It starts in issue twenty-five. It's called the Osborne Conspiracy. Um, from twenty-five on till the end of his run, it's Peter. It's art is usually by Stuart Eminent at this point, who I love. He's one of the most underrated Spider-Man artists, if you ask me. But you get, um, you get. I'm blanking right now. Holy shit. Uh, yeah, so Norman Osborn comes back. Norman Osborn basically is trying to invade Simcaria, which is um, Silver Sable, if you've heard of Silver Sable. That's her country. It's her homeland. And Norman is trying to invade because he's an asshole. Peter steps in as Spider-Man uh, with Parker Industries and S.H.I.E.L.D., and they beat up Norman Osborn. They get him out of there, blah 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 The next arc, though, takes place during Secret Empire, which is um, the event where Norman Osborn, not Norman Osborn, sorry, Steve Rogers, Captain America goes Hydra and takes over uh, the USA. Basically, he recruits, uh, he, I mean um, Steve Rogers, evil, uh, steve I think is what Rocket Raccoon calls him, Hydra Cap, uh, recruits 
a newly reborn uh, Norman, I keep saying Norman Osborn, Otto Octavius, who now is going by the superior octopus. He's in a clone body of Peter. And um, it's Peter versus Otto again, but this time Otto is working for Hydra. It's a really fun book, and it's the end of the Parker Industries era. And then out of this era, we go into Marvel Legacy, where Dan Slott is still on the book. He writes some all right stories and then he writes this his final you know magnum opus of spider-man which is called go go down swinging where basically green goblin gets a hold of the carnage symbiote and he becomes the red goblin and peter's got to fight the red goblin and the stakes have never been higher it's all right um it ends at 80 it well going down swinging ends at 800 but dan's thought ends his run on 801 801 is like a self-contained spider-man story um dan slot marcos martin and I would just say read that issue because if anything, and people give Dan Slott a lot of shit, but I think he really did understand that character. He understands what that character is on the grand scale. Like maybe not personally, personality-wise, he doesn't really connect with the character all that much, but he understands what Spider-Man means to the city, to the characters in that universe, and he understands what Spider-Man means to readers. So he writes, he he, he crafts this tale where basically it's, um, it's uh, this man who... It's this little kid who's asking his uncle about Spider-Man. Basically, this guy, he's telling, well, this guy is telling his nephew about how Spider-Man saved him. And he's, he basically says, like, Spider-Man saves uncles. That's what Spider-Man does. And something about that is, you know, it's so poignant that Peter, that's what he does. Spider-Man saves uncles because he couldn't save his. And, you know, it's it, there's something very poignant about that. But it's a, it's a really good issue to read. Um, 2018, that was the same year, had another really good issue uh, standalone of Spider-Man, which is Spectacular Spider-Man 310. This is written and drawn by Chip Zdarsky, and this is the end of Chip Zdarsky's run on Spectacular Spider-Man. He writes his own, and writes and draws his own standalone story where basically it's this guy who's putting together a documentary on Spider-Man, asking people around the city what they think of, you know, Spider-Man at all, and giving different opinions on who that person is, what they like about him, what they don't like about him, what they think of Jameson, of, you know, always slandering him with the news and all that. And then it ends with Peter Parker being interviewed and asking him about Spider-Man. Peter says this iconic thing where he says, like, you know, when I think of Spider-Man, I think of someone who's never going to stop trying no matter what. And it's it's really good. You should read that issue. Uh, Spencer, Nick Spencer takes over at this point in 2018. And his run starts really strong. I think it goes really strong for about 50-something issues, and then it careens off a hill, unfortunately. One thing I really like about Nick Spencer, though, is that I think he's got the best voice for any writer. He's got the best voice for Peter out of any writer post One More Day. He really, really understood that character and kind of what makes him tick. Um, And I think the best story he wrote, and I don't know if people would uh, necessarily agree with this, but it was Last Remains, which starts in issue, I think, 50 of his run, it's uh it's the thing is you can't really read that story on its own it's kind of uh in that run it's it's very soap opery so everything feeds into the next thing you kind of have to read the entire run to get uh last remains but i really enjoyed it it's got art by uh patrick gleason who is fantastic on spider-man it's got dr strange it's got miles morales it's got uh gwen stacy spider gwen it's really fun and i really enjoy it uh and that's the last thing i have for amazing spider-man but that's not the last thing I have for Spider-Man. The last thing I'm going to tell you to read, and maybe I should have started with this, but I just, I mean, like, it feels so obvious to me. I almost feel like I didn't need to write it. It's not 616. It's not the normal Peter Parker. But obviously, if you haven't read it, read Ultimate Spider-Man, uh, Bendis and Bagley. It's my favorite comic book run ever. It's the run that, if it didn't exist, I probably wouldn't be into comic books today uh, recommending you anything. Just read it. Uh, 
And if you have read it, read it again. And if you've read it twice, read it one more time because it's just that good. Um, I love it. It's my favorite comic book run ever. And I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, yeah, Spider-Man. Um, last words. I always do this, right? Um, if I could give any last words on Peter Parker, I think that like, I mean, there's no understating how much that character means to the world. I mean, the thing about Peter Parker is that he is us. He's so relatable in ways that most comic book characters aren't. And it's because I think, and, and this is something that I think people kind of underrate these days, but for me, the real appeal of Peter um, and the thing that I find relatable about him is that he's not necessarily always been a good guy. When he becomes Spider-Man, his first thought is, I'm going to make money off of this. you know. And then Uncle Ben dies and he, he has to be forced to realize that other people matter. That with great power, there must also come great responsibility. But at, at first, it's a burden. you know. He becomes Spider-Man, his uncle dies, and then he has to keep being Spider-Man because of his uncle, but he fucking hates it. It ruins his life. you know. He's, he's always getting beat up or bullied. He, he can never really show off what he can properly do, and it's because he's living his life... Uh, you know, through this vow that he made because his uncle died. He will never get Ben back, but he's always going to try his hardest to save everyone else because he he try, he needs to try to live up to the fact that Ben died, you know? He feels this overwhelming guilt on what happened, and even though it'll never go away, he's always going to try his best to kind of chip away at it every day. I think that's really cool. And slowly realizing that, like, he was meant to be a hero, you know, at first, being a hero is something he's forced into. It's his guilt and his responsibility that forces him into being a hero, but then realizes he's kind of cut out for one. You know, he's got the heart of a hero. He's he's like the most moral person in that universe besides Captain America, and it just makes him all the more relatable. You know, he's carrying this huge, overwhelming sadness, this deep insecurity and this deep narcissism and anger just for everything in the world that has been taken away from him. But he will never stop trying because he knows the second that he does, he's no longer living up to great power or great responsibility. I, there's something so powerful about that. You know, this character who is burdened by his ability and knows he needs to do it no matter the personal cost. Peter Parker is the character that will sacrifice everything for nothing in return. And he will do it with a smile on his face. If not for him, then for everyone else watching. And I just think there's something, obviously there's something so powerful about that. And like, I, I think the heavens that Peter Parker was created in this world, because I'd probably be like a lost person if Spider-Man didn't exist. Yeah, um, that was episode 10 of I Recommend, went a little long this time. Uh, I love Spider-Man, obviously. I could talk about Spider-Man all day. Uh, my number two favorite character behind Superman. On a good day, he's number one. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter. They flip-flop anyway. Um, but yeah, I would... Yeah, read all these books. Honestly, just read every single one. I love them all. Uh, and I love this character. Like I said, this character means a lot to me. Uh, if you listen this much, thanks for listening. Um, leave a review, leave a comment, DM me, do whatever you like. I like getting all the messages from people. Um, and yeah, this has been I Recommend. I'm Tyler, and I'll see you next week. Mwah!